Welcome to episode 17 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pozzola, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And this week, we're going to have a unique podcast of sorts because this is going to be our first mailbag episode, uh, where essentially we've you know put it out there on our Circles Off Twitter account that we're looking for questions that anyone might have, um, and we'll answer them on today's episode. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Uh, obviously, we don't want to be recording here for three or four hours. That's not going to make for a good listen for anyone. So um, whichever ones we don't get to, we will save them. We'll get to them either as a topic on a future episode or we'll put it in another mailbag episode. But uh, we're going to try to keep this as structured as we can. Um, we kind of sorted the questions. So we'll get to um, ones from different categories and we'll try to keep this with a good flow so that uh, those who are listening don't have to kind of jump all over the place. So I'll bring in Johnny here. Johnny, uh, it's been a rowdy week for me with the Euros going on. I love the afternoon soccer, betting on things. How are things going with you? Same here. Uh, we got uh, a big, big match today. We're recording this uh, ahead of the Italy-Spain semifinals game in the Euro. So that's uh, that's been fun and we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens today. You excited? I am. I'm looking forward to it. Um, both my parents are, are Italian immigrants to Canada, so uh, I obviously have a rooting interest for the, the home country, as uh, you would say. And it's been a fun tournament anytime. Uh, I love the international soccer tournaments in general. They just give you something else to bet on during the day. Um, they really just pique my interest. And I'm not the biggest soccer fan in the world, but I can always get behind these tournaments. So that's been kind of fun because the Stanley Cup for me has been a bit of a dud. Um just kind of hoping that the season ends at this point and kind of regroup and work in the off season and get focused on NFL now. But um, let's dive in here, Johnny, to um, to some of these questions. So I guess we'll start with, with the mathematics-based ones first. Yeah, so we've sorted these, like Rob said. Uh, we're going to do some mathematics-based questions first. Then we'll go on to some betting advice, um, some other topics, and then we'll get into a few industry-related questions um, as it pertains to the, the legal uh, regulated space. So first question, uh, we had actually three questions come in that were very similar. So I'll try to just summarize them, and I'm not going to be reading an exact question, but... Um, Three people reached out, wanted to know about correlated plays and how to size your bet. How do you treat different uh, plays? So what what that means is, you know, if you have an edge on three different things that are all very correlated, for example, uh, you might have an NBA series where you've got the Milwaukee Bucks to win minus one and a half games, minus two and a half games, minus three and a half games. How do you stake that differently? Um, other question came in, similar, uh, similar question would be, how do you stake a pitcher that you might be very high on um, in MLB that you think is a very good pitcher, would you bet the under and that side? Because you might have edges on both if you think it's a you know a very good pitcher facing a weak lineup. So things like that are obviously very correlated where if that pitcher blows up, uh, you're going to lose both your bets. And same thing with you know a Milwaukee Bucks series minus one, two, three. So Rob, the question I guess for you would be how would you treat these? How would Kelly staking factor into that? And, and what's the advice uh, we can give to some of the listeners here? So first and foremost, I, I, I want to talk about Kelly staking in general. And this is a very touchy subject for a lot of people. I, I use Kelly staking for my bet sizes. This is obviously when um, when the limits actually matter. Like I'm not going to Kelly stake personally a $200 prop and start betting you know, $40 on one prop or 80 because that doesn't matter to me. It might matter for others. But uh, there, in my opinion, and others might disagree with this, there's no right or wrong way to to do something like this. I mean, you want to try to stake with Kelly as as closely as possible, but when you get into situations 
where there's like correlated things. There is optimal staking for correlated things, but in reality, it's really not going to be all that accurate for the vast majority of people because your probability isn't real and you need to know the correlation level between those two things in order to apply the proper Kelly. So I take more of a subjective approach, I would say, where um, it, I guess it's a matter of your risk tolerance for one, but I'll give specific examples. So you gave out the Milwaukee Bucks example of having a minus one and a half, minus two and a half, minus three and a half. Um, that happens in the NHL, which I bet quite a bit, uh, obviously, where you'll like a team on a series price and you'll like all the derivatives of that series price. So then it becomes a matter of, okay, what do I get down on here? Well, the answer for me is if it's high limits, I'm going to pick the one that has the biggest edge, plain and simple. Because at the end of the day, when you are Kelly staking, you're going to want to get down more on your largest edge. So hypothetically speaking, I'm going to pick the biggest edge. And that could be minus one and a half games. It could just be team to win the series. Could be whatever. Now, the reality is if limits are small on that bet, I'll just bet them all across the board. And now this is me personally speaking on this situation, but that's how I would approach that. Someone with a smaller bankroll maybe you're going to take one unit and divide it across the board as well, or whatever your Kelly stake is for that edge uh, and just divide it into three or four separate bets. And and that's perfectly fine so that you can uh, lower your risk on that. Uh, In a situation where you have, and this happens in the NFL a lot, where I like one side and I like the total. Matter of personal preference for me, I'm not risking full stakes on both of those because there is... Always in the back of the he- my head, something that says to me, well, I could be wrong, overvaluing or undervaluing one of these units on one of these teams, and that is causing to a double edge. So if we look to the first game of the NFL this year, the Bucks and Cowboys as an example, right? Say I like the Bucks and the over. That means that my model relative to market either is high on the Bucks offense or low on the Cowboys defense or a combination of both. And on the first game of the year, am I willing to stake my opinion on that and ride like full units on that? No, not necessarily. Maybe as the year goes on, I'll get more comfortable. But for me, I'll play a smaller fraction of Kelly on those. Um, So I, I think like this is a question that's largely dependent on the person. But for me, um, I, I do tend to to reduce risk in those situations because I think the potential to be very wrong is there. Uh, I guess maybe it's a confidence level for me or a confidence factor, but I I mean, that's just a, uh, my personal belief in how I should stake it. Others would be like, you know what? I'm just going to send it. YOLO, you know, you only live once. An edge is an edge. Go for it. I completely understand that side of things as well. And for that person, risk tolerance is probably higher. So uh, matter of personal preference, I, I hope I, I articulated that well. Um, but that's just sort of the way I go about things. Yeah. So I'll try to add to this a little in terms of giving my opinion. Uh, and I will say, um, personally, I'm not in a, a spot where um, I'm using Kelly criterion as much. And the reason being is if there's something that's small market, I'll typically just, you know, want to be betting the max because it's under a certain threshold. And I'm not really playing much into the major markets where, you know, I'm hitting the Euro cup at full limits where I'd have to actually make a decision there. So it, with that being said, I would I can give my opinion on like a player props perspective or for a series price. So what Rob said, I think is is very true in a sense that 
Um, when you're looking at these derivative markets, I personally don't think that they're all created equal. So the you're having an edge maybe on Milwaukee Bucks series, but if you're modeling it out yourself, then you're going to have a bigger edge on one of those. It might be, you know, half percent bigger, it might be 2% bigger, but either the one and a half, two and a half or three and a half games, one of those is going to be a bigger edge. So what I would do is if you wanted to Kelly stake, you should probably just bet your um, your biggest edge because that's going to give you the longest term ROI. Although obviously you're going to be least diversified um, and subject to the most variant. So if you wanted to split it out, I think it'd be personal preference. Stake one, roughly what you would stake for one unit um, and split that up amongst, amongst the rest. Um, in terms of a scenario where you have like, let's say four or five player props and they're all tied to the same thing. So uh, let's say... Um, the same team basketball, uh, you have all of the players points overs. Uh, then what I'd say is you, you have more edges. Don't stake a full unit on each. There is, I believe a correct Kelly staking for correlated plays that, uh, plus EV analytics published. And that's someone who maybe we can have on in the future, another, uh, Toronto based, uh, sports better. So we can, we can look to have him on the, on the podcast in the future and answer this question better for now. I'd say, take a look at his work. There is a direct math staking, but as I mentioned, um, I don't, I'm not, I don't claim to be an expert directly on like the Kelly portion of things. That's just something that I would, I would do would be recommend just, you know, go ahead and and bet your biggest edge in a sense where you've got a correlated play. Uh, and if you want to, you know, bet bet bigger on one or something like that just like don't make them all a, a full unit it's just gonna be much more likely to go bust that way yep i think um from like from a mathematical perspective kelly functions based off the fact that your probability on the outcome is correct right and the reality of it is there's a lot of variance in in my outcomes like if i simulate a baseball game fifty thousand times i might get one team to win 60% of the time. If I simulate it again, another 50,000 times, I might get 61%. I mean, that's already a difference of 1% that's going to affect my staking. So for me, I've always taken sort of like a risk averse approach. I'm probably in the minority of betters that do that. Like uh, I think of Rufus, Rufus Peabody as an example uh, around the Super Bowl, how he ends up with like 200, 250 Super Bowl props. And a lot of them are tied to one specific outcome. Um, which is fine. He's comfortable with that risk. For me, on uh, you know, on, on my end, I wouldn't love tying everything I have to an over or an under in a specific game or, or something along those lines. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the the Kelly questions are always intriguing because I see this on Twitter all the time where people are just arguing of like, you should be doing this, you should be doing that, you should be doing that. And yes, from a mathematical perspective. One way is better than the other. The reality is if you're confident in your numbers, you should be staking accordingly. Um, but it just, that doesn't translate to the real world for me sometimes. Um, and I, I think I at least over the years have been able to take a step back and say, I could potentially be wrong about this. Um, and maybe I don't want to risk all of my money or a large percentage of my bankroll on something that I'm not completely comfortable with. So um, that's just my my perspective on it. Okay, we've got one more question here that's uh, sort of related to Kelly Criterion. And if we do get a good response on these two questions, uh, I'm happy to do another episode where we can kind of break down exactly what Kelly is and how it's used in in sports betting, uh, just for people who are curious. But the second question is, what price differential do you need to make a bet? So particularly interested in at different odds ranges, what percentage edge would you need? So meaning if you've got a 20 to one long shot, 
that's, you know, maybe a 2% edge. Does that differ from something that's a straight wager minus 110 minus 110? That's also a 2% edge. So I can start and take this one. I will say, um, first and foremost, the percentage edge, obviously, as Rob just mentioned, is going to be based on something that's unknown, which is your own model. So if we actually sum this out and simulated this with something where there was a known edge, similar to like, you know, picking a number out of a hat, flipping a card, rolling a dice in those scenarios, a 2% edge is a 2% edge. So if you're going to, um, say what's my threshold for a play, it should be whatever you're comfortable with your threshold in based on the numbers. So if you're telling me I have a, a dice roll where it's a quantified edge, then I'm going to play like a 0.01% edge, right? So in terms of what price differential do you need to make a bet, that's 100% based on how confident you are in your numbers and potentially regress towards the market in some sort of way. So I'll say first and foremost, that's the answer to the question that I'll, I'll give. In when we're looking at different odds ranges, Kelly staking does account for the different odds ranges. So you're going to bet more money on a minus 2000 than you are going to bet on a plus 2000 um, based on correct staking and av- avoiding essentially going bust or getting overexposed on certain plays. So what I'd say for me personally is I'm going to play, let's say a one and a half percent edge, I think would be a decent earn on something. A 3% edge would be a decent earn on something. I'm going to play that regardless of whether it's 20 to one or whether it's minus 110. So that's personal but I can see the appeal to want to play, you know, uh, either larger or smaller edges on the long shots, given that they're, they're more entertainment value and things like that. So I'll let Rob take it over. That's my uh, opinion on, on this matter. Well, I mean, in theory, you should be able to play anything that is greater than a 0% edge. Like if you have an edge, you should be able to bet that. And like Johnny said, your, your Kelly staking will account for if it's a really small edge, it's going to be a smaller bet. Um, so that kind of just takes care of itself. Now, the reality is there are situations where you don't want to do that necessarily. Like we don't all have infinite credit and an infinite bankroll where we want to be playing, you know, hundreds of small edges in a day because you have a lot of money tied up uh, in that uh, sense. And then a big edge opens up and maybe you're not able to get down or something like that. So usually I pick a higher edge threshold for me. And for me, as a modeler, I mentioned the baseball example earlier, but I, I simulate games and there's variance in the simulations. And sure, I could simulate things 2 million times if I wanted to, but then it's going to take an hour to run. And what's what good is that? So I know that I have to get a number done very quickly in some situations. I know that there's going to be some variance there. So personally, I play edges of 1.5% or higher across different sports because I usually have plus or minus 1%. Uh, variance in my model. So I know that at the worst case scenario, I have a 0.5% edge. That's just a matter of personal preference. Again, a lot of these questions that we're going to get today are a matter of personal preference. Somebody could play every edge and get down a couple hundred plays in in a day. Some people only like to play their largest edges and attack them for a large amount of money. Um, but in theory, anything over 0% is playable. For me, I realize the variance in my numbers, so I'm going to play anything over one and a half percent. I think uh, one thing that I will mention on this is if you are modeling from the ground up uh, sport, for example, like golf, where there's outright markets and then matchup markets, you may be using the same numbers on both. Uh, but at the end of the day, like you're, you're likely going to have more edges in the outright market just because there's more variance involved in like no player is going to be a favorite. You know what I mean? You might have, okay, John Rom top the leaderboard plus 600. That's the favorite, but he's not 
a favorite to win the tournament. So when we're looking at things where uh, even the most likely outcome is, you know, seven to one or six to one, you're going to have edges on a lot of things. And what could oftentimes happen is if you don't like John Rom and he's priced in market at uh, plus 600 and you've got John Rom plus 1800 uh, fair price, then you're going to hate Rom and you're essentially going to have an edge on maybe 50, 60 other golfers that's above, you know, maybe one and a half percent. So in the outright markets versus in the the pregame markets or matchups, I think it's just uh, worth noting that this is something you may want to regress to market a little bit more. Otherwise, you may end up with having a lot more edges in your model and you won't really um, understand that those could be more correlated than you think in a sense of like you might be fading one golfer. Uh, so although, you know, they're different and it's an outright market, they're very correlated to one specific outcome, right? So you just want to be more careful. And again, there's correct Kelly staking for an outright market as well that you could follow. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you can Kelly stake everything. And like, that's just the, the pure math based approach. And here's my number. Here's what the book's number is. Here's what I should bet. Uh, it's in my experience, it's not really all that easy. Obviously, if you're using a full Kelly staking, you, you could run into losing your entire bankroll over the course of 10 plays, which is not something anyone wants to do. So I recommend a, a fraction of Kelly, whether that's a quarter or a fifth, whatever you're comfortable with in terms of uh, um, risk. But yeah, at the end of the day, it, it comes down to each individual better because um, some problems for some betters, like limits, um, don't come into play for others. Um, you know, depending on what sports you bet, like like Johnny said, you could potentially have um, dozens and dozens of of outright edges on a golf market on a weekly basis. Whereas if you're betting the NBA, maybe you only have you know three or four edges on a daily basis, something like that. All these things factor into play. And at the end of the day, you need to feel comfortable with your bets. That's the most important thing I can say to people. Um, but you should track everything as well. Like if you're not, if your ROI on an edge threshold of zero to, to 2% is borderline break even, or it's a loss, like you can just cut that out and start playing bigger edges. And and that's why I think bet tracking is so important for people as well, because you can easily break down your bets and say, okay, I had a 5% five, 5 edge here. And every time I have a 5% a edge or higher, I'm returning 10% ROI. That's where my sweet spot is. Okay. I'm going to start limiting myself to only playing those types of edges. So I think there's a lot of things that come into play here. Not an easy question to answer. Uh, I hope we at least gave um, some valuable information. Yeah. Um, moving on here. So question from our, uh, our friend Fabian Sommer, Suma, uh, from, uh, Germany here. If at any step in the betting process, you incorporate subjective analysis, would you describe your knowledge of your favorite teams as an advantage or, uh, a bias slash disadvantage, or do you ignore that at all? So I think, uh, we can give this one to Rob, you model up NFL from the ground up. Uh, you're also a really big Cowboys fan. So, you know, I guess we'll, we'll let you tackle this one. Do you think it's an advantage, a disadvantage? Where do you, where are you on subjective analysis? I, th my answer now will be very different from what I would answer three or four years ago, because back then I was purely a numbers guy who just kind of wouldn't have anything to do with narratives or, um, you know, the eye test in general, I do think that there is value in the eye test. Um, now, not everyone is capable of 
extracting that value because I think obviously if you look at the recreational better, there's just way too much that revolves around this is what happened last week. I'm going to go bet this next week in the NFL type of thing. Like, oh, this team played amazing. I'm going to bet them immediately next game and not really understanding that these teams have ranges. But I think subjective analysis is important. Um, I can I can think of a few examples just in general. But at the end of the day, what you want to do with your subjective analysis is eventually try to make a way, you know, try to find a way to incorporate it into your model somehow. So take something that you're seeing and something you're saying, well, this doesn't look right to me and figure out a way to actually model it so that down the road, it doesn't become subjective anymore. And that's the best piece of advice I can give to someone. But um, yeah, there's lots of times where I've been watching a game and I'd say, this player is hurt. This player is clearly playing hurt. I am valuing them as if they are not playing hurt that's obviously uh, an issue in the model. So maybe I'm just going to avoid that team's games. I remember a couple years ago, Vladimir Tarasenko, a player for the St. Louis Blues, um, great goal scorer, who's clearly playing hurt, something I picked up watching the games. Now, could I be wrong about that? Sure. But I mean, I was fairly confident in that. I saved myself a lot of money in in avoiding those Blues games in general. Um, but I, I do think there's there are some advantages um, to just, focusing in on certain teams. We see guys that that bet college football and college basketball that just focus in on specific conferences, which I think can be a successful method as well. Um, just knowing that conference better than others um, who are betting the entire league. Um, I, I think there's a lot of situations where some subjective analysis can come into play and actually help you. You just got to be careful um, that, I mean, you're not over accounting for it. Um, and, and this is a very long winded answer, but one thing I will say just in general that I started a couple years ago, and I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before, I will never play a game that goes against my numbers. So I'm always going to make a number on a game. Cowboys should be minus four in this game. Book is minus three. I'll make the bet. If it's, I make the Cowboys minus four and the line is minus six, even though I might subjectively like the Cowboys, I'm not going to bet it. Because I personally don't, I'm not finding value there with my model. What I will do is not play a game, even though I have an edge, because I have some sort of subjective analysis that tells me I'm not going to bet this team. An example, last year's NFL season, the New York Jets. It became very apparent to me early in the year that my model could not make the Jets bad enough, quick enough. And I just said, I'm not going to be wagering money on this team who I know is much worse than what my model is suggesting. Now I'm working this off season to make sure that my model can account for that a lot quicker so that I don't have to make that subjective call next year. But what I do along the way is I track all the bets that I've essentially vetoed. And I keep records of whether it was advantageous for me to not bet that or disadvantageous. And you end up building up a pretty large sample of a couple hundred games where you're like, did I save myself money or should I have just trusted the model? And at the end of the day, I've found personally that I've saved myself a lot of money. So that's kind of been the approach that I've taken going forwards. But just to to bring it back full circle, subjective analysis is fine. Try to figure out a way though, at some point to not have it be subjective analysis anymore and to figure out a way to incorporate it into the model. Yeah. Good. Great answer there, Rob. I think you touched on most of the stuff I was going to say. 
I can I can go at it from more of a bias standpoint. I think uh, I'm not necessarily biased for favorite teams. Uh, like I'm a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to bet the team because they're I, I'm, I'm betting. You know, hopefully trying to win money, not trying to you know have as much fun as possible in most cases. So. I, I will say there's a bias sometimes on teams that have performed well for you. So if you notice you're continually betting on a certain player and he continually overperforms and you're, you know, you keep winning betting Kevin Durant overs, you are going to have a bias to continue to bet that. So that's one thing I'd say to be careful on is outside of uh, bias versus your favorite teams, but bias versus players or teams that have performed well for you can sometimes bite people uh, in the ass. And especially because typically if you're betting a team over and over again um, and they're performing well, market is adjusting. So you're, you're not going to get the same odds. If you're betting Kevin Durant points over and he's continually scoring high, then his total might've been 28 and a half next game, 29 and a half next game, 31 and a half. So continually betting the over is not just a strategy because it's working. And and a lot of people do think uh, that, is a viable strategy. So I think the, the bias there is something that could be uh, overlooked. But I think that's a good answer to the question. Uh, we'll move on to uh, the last question in regards to kind of like mathematics basis. One is from uh, Dinky, Alan Dinkinson. How often do you tweak your model? So this one I'll let uh, Rob go. I, I don't uh, have a lot there. Um, definitely at, at least every off season. Um, I'm not uh, immune to the, the human emotion of betting on sports. In fact, I probably deal with it worse than a lot of other people do. So whenever I'm in a losing streak, um, just naturally, I start to dig into things a little bit to try to understand why that losing streak is happening, whether I think it's bad variance or whether I'm missing something. And if I feel I'm missing something or something needs to be looked at, then I'm going to make an in-season adjustment. Now, for those who model, I cannot stress enough the importance of being able to back test your changes. Um, so for me, I'm not really scared of making a, a change in season to a model because I'm able to back test it against previous seasons to see whether or not that change improved my results or not. Um, so from that perspective, uh, I, I'm, I'm fine to make a change whenever I think I should make a change. But with that said, um, I try not to do it too often in season. I try not to be too reactionary unless I feel that I need to. And I do put a lot of work in every off season to, to try to understand, are there new metrics available that I could be using to help improve my model? Um, being one and like looking at the previous season of, uh, kind of when I'm watching an NFL season over the course of the year, I, I make some notes to myself of like, this is something to look into. This is something to look into. And I do look into those things in the off season and try to improve from that point of view. So I think it's, it's consistently evolving. I cannot remember the last time I used the same model from season to season, even if it was highly successful, like even a year where I did 14% ROI in NHL, I still made off season tweaks the next year. Um, and that's just going to be, the life of the modeler modeler i would say yeah and with player based models um you're also oh, yeah. tweaking i mean i guess you could say on a day to day based on injury news things like that lineup combos if you're talking nhl different usage if you're talking nfl so um yeah i'd say there's no set it and forget it model in sports betting not a not a thing that uh, will make you money in the long term that's a good point that you make as well like I- i'm talking about it specifically from like 
the mathematics side of things or like the uh, outlining the logic but yeah there's daily tweaks to every single model right i mean i could pull um nba minutes from some sort of online source but at the end of the day like your nba models accuracy is going to be heavily reliant on your ability to project minutes for each player so there might be an hour of manual intervention every single day where you're overriding those minutes to set them up yourself same thing happens with the nhl the same things happens with nfl depth charts right like i have to be able to project the snaps and formations for each team in order for my model to uh function properly or else it's just not going to be good and that's kind of the way that it's been set up so yeah there's the like daily i don't know that they're necessarily tweaks but it's more so like the daily inputs that are required and then there's the ever uh, continuing cycle of the, the logic tweaks. Okay. So we'll get into some, uh, betting advice questions. Uh, we had a few here, so I think the first two are kind of very similar. Somebody asked, what are, you know, three to five things that a better can and should do, you know, before placing a bet that would make it a better bet. And somebody else asked at the same time, what are some non-commonly discussed betting advice that you found really resonated with you? And they asked specifically to exclude items such as having the most outs, line shopping, being disciplined with bankroll management, and networking. So what I will say is, great question. The second question I read in terms of what's something that can help you with avoiding those three things. Uh, But I will say the reason you're asking to avoid those three things and the reason everybody gives you those answers are because those are the most important things. You can't stress it enough. Ignore the first, ignore the bankroll management and the networking. Having the most outs as possible is the honestly the only important thing about betting at this point. So if you have the most outs, if you can line shop, you will make money betting. So I'd say yes. Okay. It's overheard. Maybe you know you know why it's it's important. Okay, I don't want to do the work. I don't want to have multiple books. It's a hassle to keep funding and whatever. That's you making a conscious choice if you don't want to do that to leave money on the table. If you want to make money sports betting, you have to open up every single book that's accessible to you and you have to do things like line shop before every single bet you make in order to build your bankroll and make money. So I'll leave it at that. We've talked about it a lot. We don't have to mention it again. But if you're talking about what what's something you can do, if you're not absolutely like the best thing you do, just go open another book. Go on Google, get a sports book that's accessible to you that accepts players in your region and play there. So, you know, that's my best advice. Um, but in terms of some non-commonly discussed things, so things that you may not hear as often, I'd say the biggest thing that I've learned that really resonated with me was having respect for the market um, based on the betting limits. So like, if you think you have a big edge on something and you're a rookie, just starting it out, you you probably don't, you may, and I'm not saying nobody in the world does, but 99.9% of people don't have a big edge and they're not respecting the market enough. So I will say if you're, you know, if you're betting, if you're modeling MLB from scratch and you think you have a 20% edge on something, you don't. And don't be naive in thinking that you know way more than the market. So always regress. And that's where the line shopping comes into effect is if you have a 20% edge on something, uh, don't just bet it at any number you see. Line shop, try to bet into a half percent or a 0.2% hold. And then you may survive because your 20% edge is more likely a half percent or a 1% edge. So if you're going to bet that at a 2, 3, 4% hold, you're going to lose. If you're going to bet it at a half percent hold, you're going to win. That's 
my advice is have respect for the market, always regress down, uh, and take a look at the betting limits. It's something that Porter discussed uh, on our last pod in terms of look at Pinnacle and Chris, see where they're taking the least. Something like Euro Cup, they're taking $1 million (laughs) per side. So if you have an edge there uh, and your edge is 2%, then you have to think that you would literally be able to get down $10, $15 million if you want to, um, to bet that range to bet that line into range it's just likely not reasonable that you have that edge so that's that's my answer i'll let rob give some advice uh as well yeah so speaking from personal experience and part of what drew me to the bet stamp platform just in general i would say track everything that you can you will be surprised um how you can review performance on a weekly monthly basis and find some things that you just never thought or even an issue Uh, that need looking into or will affect your process. So I can give one random example, but if I am uh, betting Major League Baseball, uh, I could tag any single one of my bets on BetStamp. And honestly, obviously plugging BetStamp for a reason, but even if you want to do this in Excel and you're more comfortable there, you can still set up filters and whatever you want, but I would track... Waste of time though. Waste of time. Honestly, it is because you can just run the pivot tables and bet stamp anyways, but you could tag a bet as an overnight bet. You can tag a bet as limits came off in the morning. You can tag a bet as a bet made because of um, lineups in baseball. You can tag a bet as a fading esteem play, and you can really um, understand a lot. Like For example, I noticed that three years ago when I was betting baseball, if I was fading steam, I was not winning. So at some point you have to say, and this goes back to your point about respecting the market, Johnny, but you have to say that, you know what, maybe there are other people here who are actually better at this than me. And I don't want to be opposing them whenever something comes into range late because they moved it. Um, so there's that kind of stuff. But like ultimately, um, if, if you YouTube, um, I don't actually know the exact search, but I, it, when COVID first started, I did a video with uh, Eric Waz uh, about bet tracking just in general, where I kind of showed my NHL tracking sheet and how I use it on a daily basis. Um, I'm just a vehement believer in uh, really paying attention to your results because you will notice a lot of trends uh, that you wouldn't notice if you were just like betting it, forgetting it type of thing. You might notice 75% of the bets I make are on the home team. Well, maybe I need to revisit home ice advantage or home field advantage or home court advantage. Um, you know, 60% of the bets I'm making are, uh, you know, in interleague play for baseball. Okay. Maybe I'm doing something wrong here. Like it, it just really allows you to become in tune with what you're doing and understand where you're excelling and where you need to improve. Yeah. The amount of people who don't know what their profit or loss is on a certain sport or certain t- bet type is, is, uh, it's a travesty. Like if I ask you, What's your ROI on NHL totals? You you have to know if you, especially if you're originating, but even if you're not, you have to know. Okay, I'm you know pro, this much profitable on NHL overs, this much on unders. Uh, for there, here's my ROI on over six and a half. Here's my ROI on five and a half. Here's four and a half. And Rob mentioned back testing your model. That's obviously huge, but a way to get a good sample of what you're doing, even if you're just a recreational better who's tailing picks from a lot of people, maybe line shopping, tail a bunch of cappers online or on Betstamp, like. Tag them as that capper, you know? Okay, I, Rob gave out these picks. Here it is. Joey Toons gave out these picks. 
This is my record on hits. And you'll, you'll just have the data available. The more you track, the more you know. We'll get into another question that was asked here, kind of on what's coming to BetSam, and we'll talk more about the analysis tool. But like, it's so powerful, as Rob mentioned, in having the tracking. You will make, it, it is a time investment upfront to track your bets, but you will make that money back tenfold um, based on you know the trends that you're, you're going to be able to find. It's not a, it's literally no questions asked. You have to track. Like I, I would never advocate for not tracking anything. There is such thing as paralysis by analysis. Um, and I completely get that. Like, I'm not suggesting you spend two hours a day digging through all your numbers to try. Like, basically, when you are bet tracking and then you start to, if you've set things up correctly, the trends become very clear to you very quickly. You're able to pick up on things almost immediately over a larger sample size um, and honestly, I, I owe so much of what I have to just being able, in the early going, putting together really good tracking sheets and saying, this is what I should be doing. Uh, and, and going back to like the first segment, um, where we talk about mathematics and somebody was like, you know, what edges should I be betting? Well, that's something you could easily track, right? You can just take ranges of edges, zero to 1%, one to 2%, two to 3%, three to 4%, all the way onwards. And you should be able to get a pretty good indication uh, fairly quickly over a couple hundred plays, maybe a little bit more than that, of where you are excelling. And what you should see is a trend line that goes upwards. As your edge gets bigger, your ROI should get bigger. And if that's not happening then either it's probably a small sample in the higher end ROI. But um, if, if like you're no- noticing something different from that, you can really dive into that a little bit more. So um, yeah, I mean, that's a big piece of adv- advice uh, from me. In terms of the other question, I think it's an interesting one. Um, the what are the three or five things a better can do before placing a bet that would make it a better bet? I would argue in a lot of cases, you should do nothing other than bet quickly. Um, so in a lot of cases, like for example, NBA players injured, MLB lineup comes out, um, steam on one game, uh, that drives a number into range for you as an example, like the reality is you should find the best number as quickly as possible and bet it as quickly as possible. So I don't think that you should have a checklist necessarily of like, these are all the things I need to do before I place a bet, because a lot of times the time sensitivity is a a factor and getting down quickly is a factor. I mean, these are markets, right? It's it's a competitive market where you're competing against other bettors who are trying to bet the same lines as you. So being quicker than them uh, can be a competitive advantage. With that said, like obviously the absolute most important thing in terms of um, improving your ROI in the long run is just getting the best number possible. And it's going to seem like we always preach this and it becomes repetitive, but I mean, it's just common sense. Like why why would you pay a worse price when you can get a better price? And this is not only applies to sports, it applies to every market in the entire world as long as you're not getting scammed. Um, and that's just like the quick thing for me at this point. Open up BetStamp on the browser or on my phone. Yeah, I have all my all books there. Use uh, BetStamp. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is a shameless plug, but it's honestly, um, I, I mean, there's obviously professional betters that use Don Best, and that's fine. I'm not going to argue against Don Best platform, but you're paying 500 bucks a month for that. For the vast majority of betters, you really don't need it. So um, that's a thing for me. Um, be quick, as quick to market as possible, and make sure you get the best number. 
Yeah. Also, Betstamp has a lot of books that Don Best doesn't even support. Don Best is like um, not not to you know shit on the product as they have you know real time Chris feeds and things like that. But at the end of the day, like Don Best is full of books that nobody and their sister brother has access to anymore. Um, and a lot of that's taking up room on the screen. So I'd say if you're like a new school better betting in the regulated market, um, you know, Betstamp's a better alternative. And then, yeah, how do you justify 500 a month unless you're betting, you know, volume into the hundreds of thousands per month anyways. But uh, aside from that, we'll move on. Uh, question from uh, Rob's buddy, uh, Jim Viviano, is if you did, so I guess if you bet 500 per bet, what stuff would you be betting on most, keeping in mind the edges you have, books limiting you, etc.? So uh, I can start with that one. $500 units is honestly a good unit size because you can bet on most things um, and you won't have to really worry about, like you're going to be able to bet 500 on a prop and you're also going to be able to bet 500 on a full game, an alt market. Um, if you're get betting into the, tens of thousands, then essentially what's going to happen is you're going to, you're going to be maxed out on 500 for a prop, but you're going to be able to bet 10 grand for a game. And now your season is really going to depend on how you do on the games, not the props. The props is just going to be a separate earn for you. So if I were betting, um, $500 per bet, I think I wouldn't play many straight bets. And by that, I mean, I wouldn't pay, play a lot of straight wagers, uh, like a full game MLB or a full game NFL or NBA, unless, you know, it was an off-market number where I can get an edge. What I would likely try to do in all of my accounts is um, mix things up a little bit, try to take advantage of any promos. Because at that level of betting, at that uh, range, you're going to actually see an ROI boost in your total portfolio if you're hitting odds boosters, if you're hitting the correct ones, if you're taking advantage of bonuses. So uh, a lot of the stuff that people preach um, on Twitter, so I'd say take advantage of the bonuses and take advantage of those things and then attack the smaller markets or the alt markets. So instead of betting Toronto Maple Leafs minus 50, open up the drop down and maybe find something that's an alt market, uh, like a Leafs, you know, uh, first period team total or something like that and, and hit some off market numbers there because the juice will be worth the squeeze. And I definitely play a lot of player props and game props. So um, like a lot of times people think these are more fun markets, but I do think there's a lot of edges to be had in like a, you know, first player to score in the game, anytime goal score under over under shots on goal. If you're going to bet an NHL playoff game, or if you're going to bet an NFL game, first TD score, um, a lot of alternates. If you, if you're betting at even like a hundred dollar better, like don't bet, like, let's say you want like Julio Jones yardage total. You're going to find even better edges. Just open up the, the DST prop builder and look at like Julio Jones over 150 yards at a bigger plus, right? Because they're only going to take 100 bucks on that. But I'll tell you like the edges on when you're, anytime the book is, is forced with giving you seven or eight offerings for one specific thing, there's going to be edges there because they're going to misprice certain things. So I'd say, you know, focus on all the alt markets and uh, don't, don't try to just bet straight wagers unless you want to try to mix them in to keep your accounts alive. That would, that's what I'd say. Yeah, I think um, Porter last week had some great advice in general, or not great advice, but yeah, I guess it's just like some some wisdom, which is in reality, open up a Pinnacle or, or Bet Chris account and whatever they're taking the least on is the market that you're going to have the most edge on in general. So that's just one thing to keep in mind um, for sure is that 
uh, wherever the bigger books are taking less money, the more likely you are to have an advantage. Now, obviously, limiting comes into play. I think if you're betting 500 a play, one workaround for the limiting um, is whenever you have edges on player props to just only bet the overs. Uh, this this has worked for me for a long time at a lot of different recreational books um, where people would really be surprised that I've been able to maintain a, a props edge there. And uh, whether that's MLB strikeout props or um, NFL you know, yardage props, whether that's touchdowns or, or passing yards or rushing yards or whatever, you are definitely hurting your volume, but I think you're also maintaining that account for a lot longer. Um, so that's just a, a piece of advice in general, but I agree with Johnny. I would probably focus on uh, some some prop markets just in general. Um, 500, like he said, is a, is a good number where I don't think you're, I mean, there are sports books that'll shut you down pretty quickly, but for the majority of them, you probably still be able to get a decent bet. And I think you can probably maintain that edge a little longer by just firing on, uh, on your edges on the overs. Okay. Uh, next question. We're going to shift categories here. Uh, just a general question, Rob, why was Jeff Ma talking ill will of you on the last bet? The process podcast. I thought you guys were friends. I actually didn't listen to it. Um, even though I told Jeff that I did, somebody messaged me and said, uh, you know, Jeff's talking some shit about you and whatever. He says you guys aren't friends anymore. And like Rob's forgotten about uh, Rufus and Jeff ever since he, he joined Betstamp and whatever. Uh, and I messaged Jeff on the side. I said, like, I heard you're some, talking some smack about me. And he's like, well, you know, we don't talk to you anymore or whatever. So um, I, I, I know Jeff and like he's definitely joking. Even if it came across as him being serious, that's just the way he is. Um, so it was definitely a joke. I, I would like to have Jeff on this pod as I'd like to have Rufus on this pod at some point in the future as well. So, um, for those who are concerned about my friendship, thank you. But, um, we still message each other, um, occasionally. I don't think, you know, we're, we're trying to plan some sort of golf outing this summer, which hopefully comes to fruition as well. So, um, I, I'm not really concerned with my my friendship with Jeff Ma and uh, Rufus Peabody deteriorating. I think it's perfectly fine. What's the golf? Uh, what's the golf trip with Jeff looking like? It's it's it, honestly Rufus threw it Where out are you there. Play? No idea, um, no clue. I'll play anywhere, man. You know me. I just want to play. If, if you guys need a fourth, let me know. I'd be yeah. happy to join. Oh, I, I'm sure. I think it's going to be opened up to a a wider group. I hope so. At least I, I I like these kinds of events where you just get a bunch of betters together and you shoot the shit it's it's why i love the mit sloan conference so much and i i know we caught covid there last year and we couldn't go this year because they didn't really have an in-person event but it it's it's my favorite event not for the conference like the conference itself in my opinion is very watered down now it, it kind of sucks like you're not really learning anything but just the networking of like all the guys getting together eating those those chips at the bar anyone who's been there before knows what i'm talking about man they have like some dream chips at that sheridan boston hotel uh yeah it's a good time i miss stuff like that i'm hoping that now with uh the, the situation in the world we can start getting back to that at some point soon okay next question why is johnny not on twitter um so this one i guess would be more like why why do i not have my own public facing Twitter account because I definitely am on Twitter and, and involved in the community and, and, you know, read a bunch of stuff. Uh, reality is I'm just not like a social 
guy in that setting. I'm a very, very social guy in person and stuff like that and in different group chats and stuff, but um, typically not one to like post a bunch of stuff. And it's, it's basically just personal preference. I don't really have the time to be handcrafting out tweets for my own thing and responding to a bunch of people. So uh, if you want to get in touch with me, you could DM Betstamp or like the Circles Off account we have now that we're trying to segment. If, if you listen to this podcast, by the way, follow at Circles Off on, on Twitter. Uh, I noticed Spanky's podcast account has 5,000 followers. So we got to, we got to hopefully get at least, let's at least get to half of that. We're, uh, we're slacking behind, but Spanky's paying for followers though. Is he buying his followers? I, I mean, I can only Are assume you calling that, him out right now. <laughs> I, I can only assume that Spanky would want to grow that following and for sure he's, he's putting some money down to get some fake, fake bot accounts there. Okay. Well, we'll have to ask him. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I'm hoping, uh, we're, we're hoping to like grow this stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to have like a public facing, uh, Twitter, but you know, who knows, uh, there's other ways to get in contact with me, obviously the, okay. Next question. We'll get into a question actually about bet stamp that we want to touch on. So somebody asked, what was the primary goal for the bet stamp app? Has that goal changed with early success? Uh, and what expanded capabilities can users expect in the short versus long term? Thanks. Great podcast. Great app. Cheers. So thank you for uh, whoever asked that question. I think it was from like a burner account. But what I do want to what I answer is, OK, primary goal for Betstamp is to grow a community of bettors. Now, we've talked about this in the past. Betstamp has utility as powerful betting tools for the the better who's sharp or the better who wants to win and that would be the you know line comparison the tracking the analysis things like that and it also has a more recreational facing side with the betstamp marketplace which allows people to you know buy and sell picks verify your record keep everything all in one place so i think when i when we look at betstamp there's two main avenues we want to grow uh, the people who are tracking every single bet into the app. And we also want to grow the people who uh, are using it as a recreational app to track. I'd say right now we've had a lot of success on the latter portion where we have a lot of people who are, you know, looking to for other people's picks and a lot of clicks and a lot of people who we, you know, you'll just check the app and say, oh my God, this guy has already this many followers in Betstamp. We have, he hasn't even been on the featured page or anything like that. So I think, uh, that has been an early success for us and we want to expand that capability. The vision really is to create a verified marketplace for pick sellers where everything's just done fairly. So whether you believe in pick selling or not, and if that can work, doesn't matter. What we want to do is take something that we know exists and we know provides value to some people, whether it be on a recreational or entertainment basis or not. And we want to make that into like a fair, uh, verified, confirmed community that people can get behind. So in terms of capabilities for the future, um, I can talk more towards the, the audience of this podcast, which is likely the the sharp better is using it for the tools. Um, we are going to be launching a, a really cool update soon. That's going to have some really powerful capabilities that'll help make the bet tracking a little bit easier um, to manage. Um, and down the road, Rob mentioned a lot of things with the analysis, like the analysis tool did stem from personal need. So it's something that I think everyone needs in their own betting. At the end of the day, Excel just isn't as powerful enough as it needs to be from a betting perspective. You're not going to be able to input 20 lines. You can't track closing line value in Excel. You can't track all these different things. So the analysis tool within Betstamp 
uh, will come to a point eventually, uh, hopefully in the, sh- in the shorter term, where if you're modeling, you need to be tracking there because it's going to tell you your record on or against the Anaheim Ducks. It's going to be able to tell you, like Rob mentioned, uh, down the road, yeah, this bet was placed at one o'clock for a one o'clock game versus a four o'clock versus a prime time. Think about how many people, um, you know, want to know the record in prime time games for NFL versus like regular stuff. So overnights versus all these different things. Like the possibilities are endless because the data gets pulled in for you. If you have to track uh, and analyze your own record on Excel. It's just very unrealistic for you to have access to put in, okay, what's the pinnacle close? What's the Chris close? What's the close against the book I bet it at? What is the you know team bet on, bet against, time of day, results? So like even just thinking about if you're betting in a close game, like how many times did you have a close loss? So did you lose by one goal or did you lose by five goals? Like to be inputting or pulling in the final score into something like Excel is very, very, very uh, tedious. So I think all in, like that's going to be something that betters can value, like can can really just take advantage of in the future. Rob, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, in terms of current limitations, obviously we want to get um, the ability to track as many different sports reliably as possible in different leagues. We're currently working on soccer. We'll be rolling out MLS because it's in season and then the bigger European um, soccer league. So obviously a lot of people asking for EPL and it's completely understandable. So we do want to get to that point because um, obviously people want to be able to track all of their bets. So um, for sure, that's one of the most common requests and we're getting there. Uh, and then just to add to what Johnny was talking about, I think we kind of have this this dream of like a recommendation engine as, as well, where we can actually... Um, basically tell users rather than them having to to analyze or, or dig through their own analysis where they're going wrong, where they can improve and things of that nature. So um, a lot of stuff to do, obviously. Um, one of the challenges with Betstamp is that um, when we you know first started working together, um, we had a general idea of how we thought people were going to be using the app. And the reality is that there are so many people using the app in completely different ways. Like there are people that just use it for their own personal tracking. There's people who log on only to see other people's picks on a daily basis. There are people who buy and sell picks from the marketplace. There are people who use it strictly as an odds comparison tool. So from our perspective, we have to do our best to manage the needs of every single one of those users. Uh, and we look for a lot of overlap um, and and tools that can really benefit everyone. So uh, I'm excited uh, I'm especially excited for football season where we want to try to onboard as many users as possible. But I, I think we're headed in a in a decent direction right now. Yeah. So next question here, we have uh, similar. It's going to be right along the same topic. What are some backward looking review practices that are good for assessing your past performance and making improvements? On a related note, can you please elaborate on the best way to calculate CLV, um, et cetera? So this falls in right with what we're doing on BetStamp. Um, the best review of your previous past performance is to track everything in BetStamp because you're going to be able to pull everything automatically. Now, the other alternatives, like we're saying, put everything into Excel. It's going to take you longer, and now you're not going to have the power to utilize that in the future. Um, if you're interested in tracking at all and you don't want to uh, import all your previous bets or anything like that, just start now. Like, Just start now tracking on BetSamp. The, the stuff that's going to come to this app and the power it's going to have, you're going to want all of your betting history in there. Track by book as well, which is another thing we didn't mention. 
um, in a sense that some books are squarer than other sports books. You're going to be able to see which books you can take advantage of and which you can't for different line sets or different sports. So that's something I didn't add earlier that is another really good piece of advice, even on the betting side. Okay. On a side note, what's the easiest way to calculate CLV? Again, put the thing into BetStamp. It will calculate the CLV for you. But if you want to know the actual calculation, then what you're basically looking at is the win percentage difference in your bettable odds versus the closing line. So a lot of people want to track CLV against a sharper book, maybe Pinnacle or Chris. Uh, some people like to track it against the book they bet it at uh, just to see in terms of like where the line moved. And that's another thing in terms of, you know, more along the lines of keeping accounts alive. You don't really want to have CLV at that specific book uh, or it's easy for them to tell. But yeah, that's how you'd calculate CLV. But the easiest way, uh, bar none, is just to put it into BetStamp and have it done for you. Yep. I mean, uh, I've gotten into this debate a million times before and I really don't care for it because the reality is this is a matter of personal preference. You can calculate CLV in a bunch of different ways. There is no universal standard in the sports betting industry. So you can do it with VIG. You can do it VIG free. You can do it against Pinnacle or Chris Lines. You can do it against the sports book you bet at. It doesn't matter because the end goal is still the entire is the same thing. And it's to get a better price than what the market is closing at. So um I have no pref I, I, I listen, I include VIG in my in my CLV calculations. I've just always done it that way. Um I have targets for myself that I set for myself. Those targets change depending on when the bet is being made. Um and that's just the way that I personally do it. But honestly, I think the message to hit home here is you should be calculating CLV in some capacity regardless um, because it's a very important metric in order uh, to measure your success as a better. Yeah, and don't let people tell you like, oh, you have to track it a certain way. Like at the end of the day, if you're if you're calculating with or without VIG, doesn't matter. Just add then then you have to just add another buffer on what you need to incorporate. As long as you're consistently tracking it the same way, so don't track some with VIG, some without. Then you're fine. It, it's completely irrelevant to how you're tracking. All right, so uh, that'll kind of wrap up the the betting advice things like that that people ask. We have one more category left, which is more of industry based stuff. So uh, if you're interested in industry-based uh, questions, then stick around. If not, um, please rate, review, and, and we'll see you next week. So first uh, question is in regards to Canada. How do you envision single event sports wagering rolling out in Canada? So I'll let Rob take that one first. Yeah, so the way that this will work is each province, and for those in the, that are listening in the U.S., uh, province is the equivalent to a state in the U.S., um, each province will issue their own legislation and regulate however they want to. No different than it is in the U.S. right now with the way New Jersey does things versus Colorado versus Illinois. Um, I do think it's going to be different depending on the province pretty drastically. I think historically speaking, Western Canada is more likely to have the government operate um, the single event wagering and maybe allow um, a few uh, sports books to operate as well. Um, whereas Ontario, I think, will just basically allow pretty much anyone to apply for a license, grant as many licenses as they can, and 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 people will be able to operate. Now, Ontario represents a massive percentage of the betters in Canada, probably about 50% uh, of the entire country. So um, I do envision Ontario being very much like New Jersey. You'll see DraftKings, FanDuel, PointsBet, uh, all the big players, and the score, who is a big Canadian um 
uh, media company who is very much looking to own a big market share in Canada. Well, currently regulated in uh, Jersey and Colorado as well. Correct. But um, known for the, their enterprise legacy app, which was just like a, a scores tracker and a news tracker. Um, and now they will be able to integrate their uh, sportsbook directly into that app as well, which is going to be a big advantage for them in Canada. But uh, basically, that's how I see it being rolled out. You apply for a license, you get granted a license, um, and then it's just kind of spend a lot of money in marketing and try to to take some early market share. Um, so I, I would say, uh, I mean, province to province, very different, but um, the biggest province in, in Canada in terms of sports betting, I think is going to mirror New Jersey quite similarly. Yeah, I think you nailed it there. Um, what do you guys think will happen to Canadian access to offshore books once legalization is fully up and running? So Rob, you have anything to add to this as well? I do, having consulted for um, offshore sports books in the past, some that have um, do accept Canadian players as well. Uh, I think it depends on the type of, of book. So Bet365, for example, that has a big um, UK presence, I think will likely just apply for a license here. Um, and they will operate a legal sports book. A lot of the other offshores who operated off of Canadian native reserves, uh, as an example, I think you'll probably just see them pull out a market. Um, I mean, they're, they were gray market, um, operations just in general. And, um, I don't necessarily think that they want to open the books to the Canadian government and, and pay taxes. I can't say that as, um, I'm not saying that with any certainty whatsoever. This is just a prediction on my end, but I think the likes of companies like Sports Interaction and Bodog, um, I think they'll probably pull out uh, Canada at some point, um, especially if the government starts threatening, um, you know, th- th- uh, threatening them in terms of seizing the domains, um, because that that happened in New Jersey as well. So um, that's probably where where I see it going down. Yeah, I'm no legal expert on this. I have no idea what's going to happen in terms of those books. Um, I think it's, I mean, we'll we'll have to see how they do it. I know a lot of the offshores right now are making a big push to advertise through the .NET sites on networks like TSN or what would be the equivalent of ESPN for the uh, American listeners. But yeah, who who knows? We'll see. Um, We're excited to have a competitive market in Ontario if that's the way it shakes out. I think that's the best uh, for the player. So We'll see how it shakes out. I will. Um, I was looking to actually do an episode where I can break down kind of like the different aspects of sports betting in terms of like the paperhead versus traditional offshore versus regulated market. Um, and we can we maybe could do an episode on that, Rob, you and I, that we can hopefully share more with uh, our friends, family, and other listeners here in Ontario where it's more applicable. Um, Okay, next, uh, during a recent episode, the betting exchange model came out and there was talk about liquidity and the lack of faith in the concept for the US market. So anyways, my question would be, would you consider having Sport Trade app? Um, so I, I believe the founder is Alex Kane. Um, if, I, if that, I believe it's Alex Kane on for an episode. A hard hitting interview would be illuminating. So Rob, what do you think? I mean, I'll, I'm always open to different guests, um, whether... Uh, I I know nothing about um, or not much about the sport trade app just in general, so I'd be interested in it um, for sure. I mean, I, I just Listen, saw- he just went on bet the process, so maybe give it some time, and then as they launch in Jersey, we can have him on as well if he wants to try to promote his platform and and talk about. It. I think that's probably a, a good answer for having him on. But sorry to cut you off, Rob. Yeah, I, I I like the idea of exchanges in general. I really do. Um, 
Now, maybe not necessarily for a casual better where they might find it a little bit overwhelming. Um, you know, I use a crypto exchange right now as well, which I've, you know, got onboarded on about a month ago and I'm, I'm interested in it a little bit. I, I like the ideas, but liquidity is always an issue. And when you have different states um, with their own regulations and you can't share liquidity across states, I just really struggle with how that's going to be successful. But maybe, um, maybe I'll be proven wrong. Yeah. Sport trade looks to have, I think they're, they're, Advertising backing by a lot of financial big wigs slash NASDAQ um, tech, different things that they're kind of throwing around as buzzwords. So I don't know how the product's going to look out. Like I said, I've never talked to Alex um, or have really inter- in, like interacted with that product. So obviously, like I hope it works because it's a great product for the player if it's as advertised. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, we can uh, potentially have him or uh, maybe another representative as it goes on um, as they launch. And hopefully we can promote that product. Uh, in Jersey and then wherever else they're hoping to to launch. Okay. And then last one uh, before we wrap up the episode is a question from, again, our pal, Adam Chernoff. Um, he writes in, if resources and licensing were not an issue and you two were tasked with starting a sports book in the US market from scratch, what would you do? Well, this is a, a tricky one. Um, from a product perspective, Strictly speaking on product, I would make um, essentially design a regulated version of bet online. So I think that you really have this segment in the middle, like you, you know you have your recreational better, which is being heavily serviced right now by all the regulated players, right? The Will Hills, DraftKings, FanDuel, Foxbet, BetMGM, all catering to the regu- you know the the recreational player. Then you have your sharp better. Where there's, you know, Circa Sports, um, Bet Chris, if you still want to to be offshore, if you're outside of the U.S., Pinnacle as well. But you have like this middle segment that, in my opinion, is quite large and is being underserviced. Um, and Bet Online, I think, is the offshore that services that segment. And I don't think that there's really a regulated book right now that is capturing that segment. And when I say that, it's like okay, I can make a $1,000 bet and I'm not going to be limited to $25 after I win a couple bets, right? Um, So from a product perspective, that's kind of the market I'd be going after and I would build a very traditional sportsbook product. I know that down the road, I do think that there is an opportunity for someone to present sports betting in a new fashion that is not the traditional look of all these sportsbooks out there but I'm not going to be the innovator in that space. I'd probably be the copycat at some point down the road. Um, so that's how it would start it. Now, in terms of marketing, that's where you get your big problem right now because you have all these sports books that are competing for market share and spending a ton of dollars on acquisition and losing players because um, they're going to other sports books for great bonuses. Um, and it's just a very it's very difficult to retain the player base just in general. So from that point of view, I would have to think of something outside of the box. I'd probably be looking to buy up as many uh, smaller affiliate networks as possible um, right now. And I know that's, you know, some of the big companies are doing that, but I I would really, really go after the affiliate networks um, that are doing well with SEO because that's where the majority of your traffic is going to come from is people searching um, Google search results. So that would be kind of my, 
uh, strategy there is buy up the affiliates that are ranking well, potentially ones that you can get at, at cheaper than an action network. Like I'm not buying a $240 million affiliate um, and produce a regulated product that's pretty similar to bet online. Yeah, I think that's uh, one way to look at it. I, I do agree with a lot of the stuff you said there. My answer would be a slight bit different. Um, I, I'll say... Like in terms of the person you're targeting, I'm 100% with you. So the way I see sports betting is, you know, you're going to get a lot of new customers that are going to deposit your $200. They're going to lose that $200. they are going to never deposit again. It doesn't make sense to build a product for those people. It's it's very short-term, short-sighted, and not um, it's not smart for the long run, especially if the sportsbooks are not profitable right now. There's no reason I'd be paying to onboard somebody who's not a lifetime customer. I would be focusing on people who are using betting as entertainment and are going to be in the game for the long haul. So I, I would not want to build a product that in, in theory would earn 10% from the betters it takes in the short term and then not have any returning customers. I'd rather build a product that's so good um, product-wise, user, like UI, UX design, offerings, um, just limits everything is so good that you'll attract the person who's going to be the lifetime minus one to two percent better who's going to use betting as recreational entertainment so like like we've talked in the past there's nothing wrong with betting for a whole year losing one percent and having fun in the process it's, it's just like you know entertainment based i would build a sports book that's going to take one to two percent from betters that are going to be lifetime customers of the sports book for years into like, you get someone out of school to start betting and you're, they're going to be customers and they're going to enjoy it. Like it's a two way street. When you take money from people at a minus 20% rate and they bust so fast um, in terms of like, then they go bust so fast, then you are essentially creating a person who is not enjoying your product and is not going to return to that space. So why would you want to build a product for something that you have to consistently acquire new users every single year to be profitable. Wouldn't you rather build a product for somebody who's going to be a lifetime customer and actually have value in your platform? So that's where I'm at. That's the player I would build a product for. In terms of how you would do that, I think the like the main thing missing from the regulated market right now, the easiest thing possible, get an auto mover. How to no one has an auto mover is unbelievable right now. You can't, you have to limit players right now because you have no auto mover. Pinnacle and Chris have an auto mover. If you bet there, you can't get triple, quadruple popped and you don't have to limit players because you can just trade on that advice. So, I mean, the tech would be first and foremost, get an auto mover, get better offerings to the point where you don't have to offer every single market, but like in play, for example, like you have to be available to offer an in play line, at least for a game money line at all times. You can't be, you know, 70% outage, 50% outage during an in play market. That's another thing. Um, and I guess like Adam, we can talk about this. I'm going to, I'll message churn off and, and discuss it with him. So he's obviously interested. Maybe he's building his own product. I'm not sure what he's doing right now, but, um, yeah, I mean, that like definitely focus on building a product for the person who's going to have value in using your product, not to take somebody's money. And doing that in a way where the UX, the UI, and the tech is very good, I think is the home run right now. Yeah, I think there has to be an emphasis on player experience with uh, any um, sports book in this space. Uh, and the reality is decisions have to be made 
from from a like almost from a player point of view is as a player I would want this okay let's build that out the reality is if you're running a sports book it's a license to print money anyways it's just a matter of what margins you're going to hold at and in some cases like holding at a 19% margin like barstool for one month is going to be way more detrimental to the business than it is holding at 5% for a month where you're able to just retain a lot more of those players so um yeah, I mean, it's a tough question, obviously. I think the, the the real answer I would give to Chernoff is I wouldn't start a sports book in the U.S. right now uh, from scratch. I would much rather be involved in the affiliate space for the reasons that I just mentioned, because I think it's very likely that sports books are going to be sna- snatching up all the affiliates, uh, and for good reason, because... Um, you know, it, I'll just this is a random example, but if I'm DraftKings and I buy an affiliate and um, they are affiliating to 10 different sports books, only one of them being DraftKings, okay, they're sending players to us. But if they are sending players to our competitors, guess what? We're making money off of our competitors. So um, I, I think there's, yeah, I think it's a very competitive space right now where it's just like this arms race, so to speak, of trying to acquire players and it's not cheap. Um, I think sports books are spending more to acquire players than they're making off of them right now. Yeah. I'll close off on this as well. Um, on Rufus's podcast, Alex of sport trade did mention that his product is built for someone who's price sensitive because they're going to have the tightest margins. But what I will say is this building one platform that's price that's for the price sensitive shopper, in my opinion, does not work. And the reality is it doesn't work because Again, just my own opinion. The price sensitive shopper doesn't use one book. The price sensitive shopper uses every single book that they have access to. So building one book that offers tight spreads is kind of counterintuitive to the whole concept of price shopping. If you're willing to grind it out, you're going to be price shopping at multiple books, not just one. So you might as well honestly take the higher hold. I, if I were launching a regulated book, which again, like Rob mentioned, I, I'm not, and we launched BetStamp for a reason because that's the vision we believe in. Um, but yeah, if I was launching a regulated book, I would not do a reduced juice book. It wouldn't be a minus 05, minus 05. I'd rather deal minus 120, minus 120 with a really good UX, UI, and customer interface than deal a minus 105, minus 105 with a shitty offering and have to limit players and things like that. Well, the funny thing about minus 105, minus 105 is that... Um in theory, it should attract more players, but the reality is there's such a large portion of the population that isn't price sensitive right now that it's not really serving as an acquisition tool. It's like even in the offshore space, like, you know, I mentioned I'd build a bet online, but Lovig is the exact same as bet online and has way, way less players than bet online does overall, despite being the exact same offering, but at a lower VIG. Uh, and the reality is there's just not a lot of people out there right now that where price sensitivity actually matters to them. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you're going to like minus 105, minus 105, if people are waiting around for a book to launch, that's minus 05, minus 05. You have that. That exists right now. If you combine every sports book, you can get minus 01, minus 01 in most games. So the price sensitivity thing, a lot of people who are entering the space are going to go after that. And I think that's honestly something they should just forget because that already exists right now in the form of, I'm not saying it's not important. It's extremely important, but that exists right now people can line shop and get that. So that's not what we need to do is create a, a, a is have an offering that's low Vic. But uh, anyways, I think that wraps it up. I'm not sure how long we went here. We'll have to um, edit it. I think we're over, over an hour here. 
good episode. Thank you to everyone who sent in questions. We'll try to do these more regularly, whether it be maybe once a month, once every five, six episodes, we'll do a a question and answer. Um, So thank you everyone for sending in. Um, As Rob mentioned, if you do like the podcast, please rate and review on Apple or Spotify and uh, follow the Twitter account. We got to pass uh, Spanky's podcast.